Here we are. First question for the day is, what do you say to somebody who says they are not religious, they're spiritual? They're not religious, but they are spiritual. This is actually one of my, I mean, I don't want to call it a pet peeve because that sort of makes it a little petty. Let's say it, let's say it this way. It's, it's a, it's a serious concern that people say this and they mean it and it's, um, got a lot of problems with it. And so I think very well-meaning people say it. I'm not impugning their character or something like that, but there's a lot of issues associated with this. So I thought a good way to evaluate the claim, I'm spiritual, not religious, is to evaluate maybe some of the reasons that at least I think, in my opinion, I could be wrong on some of this, but you know, my vibe is that these are the reasons, the pros that people put out there for why they would go this route, identify as spiritual, but not religious, bum, bum, bum. So here are some pros. And by the way, I did this when I was like in my teens. I remember saying this to somebody, um, and I'll explain why I said it later, but but I remember saying this to somebody as I was witnessing or sharing with them about God, or about Jesus, about the Bible. And um, they said something, something religion. And I was like, well, I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm talking about spirituality, not religion. And um, it was effective in the moment for helping like in that moment. It did help. But did it really help? <laughs> So let me uh, let me give through some of the pros. Why do people say this? Um, why do people think that they're spiritual, not religious? Uh, first, I think that they would say, and I'll give you, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six pros. Six pros for why I think people do this and why even Christians often do this. And it's a very big mistake, but I'll explain why. So number one, uh, they'll think, hey, I got no strings to hold me down. I say I'm spiritual, not religious, because I've got no strings to hold me down. There's, there's I don't have all this these commitments that I'm making externally to whether it's God or 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 Jesus or specific religious beliefs. You know, I've got no strings to hold me down. I, I just get these these spiritual sort of good vibes or good good um, feeling that I'm spiritually healthy, just like the way exercise makes you physically healthy or eating well. I'm spiritually healthy because I said that. So no strings. A second pro would be, and all of these have serious problems with them, it would be that people feel that they are open-minded by saying I'm spiritual, not religious, that they're actually very open-minded. I'm open to all truths. I'm not restricted to just one sort of religious set of beliefs. I'm open to anything. So they're very open-minded. Um, also, there's no stigma. The third reason, there's no stigma attached to it. And this is a big one. Um, there's, you know, religion in general, has a lot of negative stigma attached to it in our culture, a, a whole lot of negative stigma attached to it in our culture. And it's just uncomfortable if people think that you are religious. In fact, the word religious doesn't just mean somebody who is very, has um, strong religious commitments and adheres to them, but, but rather it means like, ew, right? Like you're religious, you're, you're kind of gross. Like you're like, Ooh, I don't like, he's very religious. Oh, don't invite him to that event. Or, oh, don't become his friend. Don't date that guy. This is kind of the, the vibe. So you don't have that stigma. You could have very religious beliefs, but you're saying I'm spiritual, not religious. And it takes away some of that stigma. Um, the, the, the next reason, number four, would be there's no baggage. Um, now, a, a lot of religious groups in particular, like so Islam, um, Baptists, and I'm not saying this is the same thing, but um, the uh, they're not. But but the um, other groups like uh, Presbyterians or or Catholic or whatever, all these different groups, Jehovah's Witness, they all have various baggage. People are familiar with the group identity, and they whether that baggage is legit or not, it comes with baggage, right? Like there's people who will think negatively about the group, about you because you associate with a group that they have these negative thoughts about. 
And so you remove that. I've got no baggage if I say I'm spiritual, not religious. I'm, I'm just getting rid of that baggage. And it's sleight of hand, but this is this is what happens. Also, you can say, the, the next one is that you're always seeking. I'm always seeking. I'm a seeker. And so you feel very like... Um, very good about yourself. Like I'm a seeker. I'm just seeking for truth in every religion, truth in every location. So I'm I'm actively pursuing instead of having like a dead sort of static religious set of things I believe. I'm continually seeking to grow and learn. Now neither of these things are reality. That but this is this is the implication, right? This is the pro. And the next one is um, that I embrace all spiritual leaders. This is often what I hear with, with someone who says I'm spiritual, not religious. Now a lot of Christians don't mean this. When they, when they use the phrase, but a lot of non-Christians or, or those who are like pop, real real low-level pop Christian, no offense, that's just what they are. Uh, they, they say they're Christian, but they have very little Christian, actual unique Christian beliefs. Um, when they say this, what they mean is like, oh, yeah, I'm embracing all spiritual leaders. So like Muhammad, yes, of course, we can learn much from him and, and Gandhi and and Jesus, of course, and Moses, and all the prophets, and all the great spiritual, and, and the, the 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 very the Buddha, and all this, I embrace them all. So, like, I'm drinking from every well. I'm I'm eating, you know, my my spiritual, you know, plate is well rounded. I've got the carbs, and I've got the veggies, and I've got I've got every. Uh, I, I guess veggies have some carbs in them, <laughs> but you've got you've got all these different nutritional elements you're you're sort of pulling from various different religions. Okay, so those are the things I think are the reasons why someone says I'm spiritual, not religious. Now, I think every one of them has serious problems. I'd like to run through them again and just tell you the problems I have with them. Um, and But this explains why even Christians will say it. They'll be witnessing, oh, I'm spiritual, not religious. But I'm like, Christian, you are religious. You're just lying about it because you think it's going to be pragmatically helpful. But let me, allow me to explain the reasons why. So, and then I'll, then I'll share a couple Bible, one, two Bible verses in particular that weigh in on this in a way that I think blows out of the water the idea that religion is just generally a bad thing. You don't want to be religious. Like, you want to be religious, guys. You should be religious. But not just any religion. Not just religious in general, but religious with true religion. So, first pro of being spiritual, not religious, is I got no strings to hold me down. And I'll say, you do have strings, they're just not religious strings. So you're spiritual, not religious, but you are just basically probably a cultural lemming or a cultural chameleon. You're going to adopt whatever sort of waves of beliefs and social issues and sort of good vibes are going on in your culture. Whatever religions you are exposed to, you will try to passively approve of them as much as you're able. And so you will start to morph and you'll shift. The strings are there, you just don't consider them religious strings. So you morph into culture, you're not actually having sort of this good, healthy, religious anchor that keeps you from going down the way of the dodo bird, wherever your culture happens to be going. And if you've looked at human history at all, guys, we, we know when we look at human history that humans do some crazy stuff in every generation. And when I was younger, I remember reading some of these things and thinking, how could they do this stuff? They're nuts. They're, they're, they're horrible. They're evil. And I didn't think my, my generation was doing it. Why? Because I am going the way of the dodo bird. I am ignorant and blind to the sins of my own generation. And I'm very aware of the sins of prior generations. This is, this is every generation's curse. We, we can be critical of our parents, but we're very uncritical of ourselves. And so um, when I get religion, good godly religion in there, I, I have strings that are from God. I have barriers and truths that are from God if it's genuine religion. That gives me the ability to go against the grain of the current culture. So yes, you have strings. They're just not the right ones. <laughs> um, so the second benefit of being spiritual, not religious, would be that you're open-minded. 
The problem with being perpetually open-minded is that it requires that you hold very loosely many things that are true, or you don't hold them at all. So open-mindedness, in a sense, is a very good quality thing, but I mean, one great thinker, I can't remember his name, said that the purpose of opening your mind is to close it down again on something that's true. And if, I mean, this is this, if you really want to be wise about being open-minded, you shouldn't, and I see philosophers do this sometimes, and I see people do it all over the place, um, especially in the intersection between the philosophical community of Christians and atheists, where they kind of intersect and try to become like, as much, get as much common ground as they can have. This is one of the downsides of being in that community, which there are a, a, a number of them, to be completely honest. Um, but uh, that's for some other video, um, or never. But the one of the downsides is this thing of, I'm going to hold all of my beliefs very openly and loosely, so I'm willing at any moment to just drop them. But I want you to consider that religious beliefs, while some of them can be put in that category, right? Like your beliefs about eschatology or end times, when, when exactly should I consider the, uh, the, the second coming in the timeline of events that we read about in the book of Revelation? Okay, like to me, I'm like, that's something I, I'm perfectly content to hold very, fairly openly. But if you're holding openly things like, is Jesus really my savior? And I'm going to hold that with a very open hand. Like maybe he is, maybe, I mean, I mean I'm convinced he is, but I don't know, maybe 75%. Like, I don't know, maybe. He, imagine doing this in your marriage. Am I really married to that woman? Am, do I really love that woman? I mean, I'm like, I hold it open. I'm open-minded. You know, I, what you're doing is you're harming your relationship with your spouse because you can't just do this with every truth that's out there. I don't hold open-mindedly the, the idea that I am actually a living being experiencing real things in the real world. Some philosophers would, would want you to hold that open-mindedly. I think that's ridiculousness. Okay, I think this is where philosophy ventures into um, folly. I don't hold open-minded the idea that, um, that Jesus is my Savior. Now, that doesn't mean that I get there without evidence to support it, that I don't have a mountain of support evidentially. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that I am going to rely upon this thing as very true or else I can't function well in life. Um, so some of this open-mindedness, what it ends up doing is you, you can't hold onto anything and your, your worldview is nebulous and it's shifting all the time. And often, this is a strange critique, but I'll throw it out there. Those who say I'm spiritual, not religious, often have a sort of mosaic of different things that they have decided to believe. They hold them loosely, so they're willing to switch out that mosaic anytime. Um, which which also implies that you, maybe you don't have great reason to believe it if you're so e easily willing to throw it out. But but this mosaic is often conflicting. You know, some mosaics are really nice and some are like, this. it's chaos. It, the little tiles conflict with each other. And that's what happens with a lot of the people that are spiritual, not religious. They They have beliefs that are incoherent with each other. So they'll be like, well, I believe in Jesus too. But they totally reject Jesus. But they say they believe in Jesus, but then they teach something else that Jesus was totally opposed to. So they'll, they'll have these, this conflicting thing, which means that whatever is true religiously, if you have a conflicting mosaic of beliefs, whatever is true religiously, it's not what you believe. Like you're definitely wrong in that case. So th this happens with perpetual open-mindedness. Um, there's also no stigma. The third one was there's no stigma if you're religious, not spiritual. And this is, this is basically comes down to, I'm like, yeah, you're right. There's no stigma, but it's people-pleasing. Like, people will not be offended at me, will not be upset with me, will not look negatively about me. I don't have to navigate through baggage of, of biases they have, prejudices, or maybe past pains or hurts they've got. And all this stuff just is people-pleasing in the end.
right? This is, I'm going to compromise reality and truth in order to have a better time talking to this person. And this is where we've got to make hard decisions. Jesus didn't do this. He actually uh, was okay with facing the stigma of the things he was really teaching and believing. And I would say it actually reinforces stigma. Saying I'm spiritual, not religious, reinforces stigma because it sends a message to everybody that religious is icky and bad. And I'm not that icky bad thing. I'm not the, I'm not the icky bad. It's not me, I promise. And so religion, just to clear some of the air, you may have heard religion is the cause of most wars. This is factually and historically not true. You may have heard that religion has been the cause of you know, the majority of the harm the human race has experienced. That's also not true. You may have heard that religion is generally a force for evil in the world and not good. That is factually not true. These are things people believe, but it's a false stigma. And these are reasons why people don't want to identify as being religious. That would be, um, and you might be like, oh, I have examples of uh, Muhammad going on killing sprees, slaughtering the Jews in Mecca, just slaughtering them all, um, or, the, or even the pagans. And yeah, he did. Okay. But that's Islam. That's not religion. The issue here is, is, is it true religion? Is it, or is it false religion? That's going to be the real key issue here. And an example would be government. Uh, you know who is responsible for massive, massive amounts of murders and, and slaughters and horrible oppression of people? Governments. But nobody's like, you know, it's not like America goes, we're America, but we're, we're not governmental. We're just service mental. <laughs> Nobody does this. They don't try to pretend they're not a government because they are a government no matter what they say. And you are religious no matter what you say. The question is whether the government is good government or bad government. Same question for religion. Is it good religion, true religion, or is it false religion and bad religion? These are the real issues we should have. And of course, when I say though, I'm not, I'm religious, but I, but I have true religion. This is seen as, even if it's a factual claim, it's seen as arrogant. It's seen as like a bridge burning and not building. And I think maybe we get a little bit into the people-pleasing issues there. The next one, the fourth one was there's no baggage. If you say I'm religious, I'm spiritual, not religious, you have no baggage. Um, except like I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay. And if you're a Christian, let me just put it this way. You have baggage, whether you, whether you want to or not, if you're going to follow Jesus, there's baggage that comes with it. The early Christians were persecuted because of their baggage of following Jesus. The apostles were persecuted because they kept proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Like this comes with the territory. It's a healthy thing. It's part of what makes you decide whether you're really serious about following Jesus or not, is whether you're willing to take the baggage. Now, the baggage I don't take, I'll take the baggage of, oh, well, Mike, you're just this, you're one of those pro-family guys, right? You're one of those like religious conservatives as far as your, your spiritual values, your moral values. Absolutely. That's part of the baggage that comes with it. You may not like that. I'm okay with you not liking that. That's part of the baggage that comes with me honestly and openly following Jesus. Then you you uh, you might try to add the baggage of like say what the Catholic Church did with the Crusades. My uh, microphone is having some identity crisis. Thinks it's the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> okay, let me see if I can. Let me just. I'll just. I'll just do this. Why? Oh dear. I've been having issues every stream, it seems, but it's different issues. I fix the issues and then there's more. If I follow the mic, I shouldn't have touched it. Okay, I'll just, I'll fiddle with that, but I won't talk about it. Um, so the baggage that I want to avoid as a Christian, I want to take the baggage of Jesus. I want to take the baggage of the Bible. I will, I will fight to defend scripture, defend its goodness and its truth and its integrity. I will take all the baggage of people saying that I'm supporting genocide and, 
and all that other stuff that's not true. I will take it all. But what I won't take is the baggage of every Christian in history and all the bad things they did when those things weren't consistent with Jesus. And so I can just ask, like, hey, that thing that you're mad about that happened in history, was it consistent with Jesus? And if it wasn't, I won't take that baggage because I'm not a follower of fill in the blank, right? The, the, the Pope at the time of the Crusades, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not a follower of uh, whoever did what in 1920. I'm a follower of Jesus. So that's the baggage I don't take. Um, the next one is, and then we'll go to all your questions soon, guys. Let me just rant through all these things real quick. The next one is that we're always seeking. Um, I'd say I'm spiritual, not religious, because I'm always seeking. I'm always seeking. But this is not tr actually true. Because <laughs> when you find the thing you're seeking and you keep seeking, that's, that's, when you add never finding to always seeking, you have now moved into a realm of playing like you're seeking. So I'm always on a journey. Journey where? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. The journey is more important than the destination. I'm like, well, not when it comes to truth. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, if you're always seeking but never finding, then you're not really seeking. You're just on a journey to be on a journey and to stay on a journey. And this is interesting because if you're spiritual but not religious, and if, and if this fits your description, that you're always seeking but never finding, then that means that finding truth is actually a problem for your spiritual, spirituality. Finding truth means that you actually have to stop something that you consider part of your core spiritual beliefs and, and values, which is this always seeking mentality. Now, as a, as a Christian, I am always seeking further knowledge of Christ, but I've clamped down onto who Jesus is. I've clamped down on the death and resurrection of Christ and the truth and authority of God's word. I'm still seeking and learning all the time, new things about God, new things about scripture, new things about the Christian life, um, all this stuff I'm learning all the time, okay? So it's not like there's no seeking that goes on, but I have stopped seeking when it comes to how, you know, who am I? What's my, what's my issue sin? How will I be saved through Jesus Christ? I have found, I have found, and I acknowledge that. And the final one is they'll say, I embrace all spiritual leaders. This is a real common one. And it feels like so bridge building, like, man, I think there's truth in Muhammad. I think there's truth in Buddha and truth in Krishna. I think there's truth in all these. And of course that's true to a point. It's not like everything Buddha ever said was wrong. Uh, a lot of what he said wasn't really religious much at all. <laughs> um, it was more like practical life advice. But or if you can even figure out what he what he really said versus other things. But the um, but the thing here is, you can't actually say that you follow or you embrace all spiritual leaders because on very key points, most of the spiritual leaders disagree. This means that if you were to if you were to put down Jesus in a room, set him at Jesus in a room with Buddha and Krishna and Muhammad and fill in the blank, add other spiritual leaders that you think are gurus that you follow and you think you follow all of them. If you were to explain your beliefs to them, specific beliefs, and then let them ask questions about the beliefs they care about a lot, like Jesus, right? If he could ask you, every, almost every one of these religious leaders would reject you and your spirituality. This is kind of a big eye-opener, but when you, when you think, I'm, oh, I follow Jesus, and I follow Krishna, and I follow all of the... Like, you don't. And if you were to sit down with them, they would reject your spirituality because this is, this is we're moving into la-la land, like sort of a pretend spirituality that's happening here, where I, it's not grounded anything because the focus of I'm spiritual, not religious, is often more about, I want to feel like I'm spiritual. 
that's it. I just want to feel like I'm a spiritual person because that's kind of the realm of, of what I care about with spirituality is that I feel like I am a spiritual person. And for this, the easiest way to feel spiritual is to just fake it, is to just pretend that you're spiritual. And that's what ends up happening a lot, unfortunately, with this stuff. So the the uh, the spiritual, not religious thing, how do you actually answer someone who says this? I mean, I, I think that obviously you could play my video for them and maybe they'll listen to it. Maybe they'll still be your friend afterwards. <laughs> I hope so. Um, but I think that, you know, you could you could talk about some of those issues like you're seeking. What are some of the things you found while you're seeking? You say you're open minded. What are the religious leaders that you follow? You know, do you follow Jesus? How about Krishna? How about, OK, what are some of the beliefs that they have taught that you also embrace? And then you could point out other beliefs they've taught that this person won't embrace to help them start to see some of the problems. The difficulty here is that if their spirituality is meant to make them feel good, then talking about it with someone who thinks they're wrong does not feel good. And there's a really high chance they will not talk to you about it at all. And so maybe one of the better ways uh, to approach this might be like taking them with you to church, reading a book, they'll read it and you read it and you guys talk about it together. So you're tapping into their, I want to feel spiritual as a way of building a bridge to actually being really spiritual, which involves being religious. Now, what does scripture say about this? Here we go. James 1, 26 and 27. Here's the Bible using the word religious in a very positive context. James says, if anyone thinks he is religious, which James clearly in this context thinks religious is a good thing. He goes, you think you're religious? And that's a good thing, by the way. But you don't bridle your tongue, right? You're deceiving your own heart. So if you don't control what you say with your mouth, then your religion is worthless. See, because James thinks that religion, and James being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this in the text of Scripture, that religion is a positive thing that you do want, but that it can be bad religion, right? It can be worthless religion, but he wants you to be, to be properly religious. So verse 27, he explains what properly religious is. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained from the world means I'm not sinning in my life. So I'm fighting that battle of living righteously and dying to self and not sinning as I follow Jesus. And um, visiting orphans and widows are is, is basically helping people, caring about and helping people who are going through hard times and difficult times and lack and suffering. That's a beautiful example of what good godly religion would look like. So let's go to your guys' questions. By the way, I have all 20 in the uh, in, in my lineup right here. So I have all 20. If you guys have questions that I haven't answered and I don't get to, you can always go to the website and we have a search feature. I have a link exactly to the search feature in the description of this video if you'd like to see it. And that search feature helps you see if I've answered that your question in a different Q&A because we've got quite a lot of videos. All right, question number two. This is from AD Chan who says, who then is my neighbor? Luke 10, 25 through 37. I know the good Samaritan is me, but who does the neighbor he helped represent? I've never met a naked, beaten, robbed Jew, I don't think. I figure you'd probably remember if that had happened to you. So, A.D. Chan, who is your neighbor? Well, we know the story of the good Samaritan. Um, and the, the nature of the Samaritan is that he was considered, and the Jew... Um, is that they were they were considered very there was tons of animosity between the two groups and they considered each other illegitimate 
the Samaritans thought, hey, in, in our town, we have the right place to worship God. And then the Jews were like, no, it's in Jerusalem. Now, the Jews were right on this topic, but this created a massive divide between them. So that Jews and Samaritans often tried to not cross paths even. So the fact that the Samaritan helps, of course, we know is, is pretty significant in that passage in Luke 10. Um, but you're asking, who is the neighbor? If I'm, if I'm supposed to be the Samaritan, then who is the neighbor? I, I think that the way I'll give you my super short summary of the Good Samaritan parable of, I think, I think my understanding of the point behind it, it is your neighbor is anybody you encounter in life who is in need. That's it. So anybody you encounter in life who's in need. And that's the thing about the Samaritan. He's on his way on the road and he sees a Jew who normally they have nothing to do with each other. Jesus tells a story about how he helped this man. And then, then he asks this question to his audience. He says, who was the neighbor of the man, this man who was injured? And they said, well, the one who helped him. And so that, that's the bottom line is like, who is your neighbor? It's, well, it's who you can help, who around you needs help, who needs assistance. Now, we often focus this assistance on um, uh, just super pra practical thing. You guys, forgive me if, if this strikes you as odd. I just want to say we often focus our assistance on certain kinds of people. And what we want to do is open up our eyes to see around us people to, that just have needs and not focus on only helping certain kinds of people. I think that's one of the points of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So one example in our culture nowadays is homeless people who are standing on the side of the road, people often think, oh, I'm being the Good Samaritan because I'm helping that particular homeless person. But those are, of course, the homeless people that get the most help financially because they're the ones standing on the road. There's lots of homeless people that would never do that. They would never go out and, and panhandle like that. But we then think kind of like my job is done. But really the idea is that you're just helping whoever you encounter. And, and this is this is the thing. Pray that God you know, gives you eyes to see the people around you that have needs and that you'd be aware of their needs and you'd think, that's my neighbor. When I say they're my neighbor, I'm, I'm basically thinking, I have something of a responsibility to help them. You know, when, when my neighbor, I hear a noise in my neighborhood, I always open my door and check, you know, and I'm like, hey, does anybody need help? Um, I think that that's the, the mentality is, I am, I am a resource for helping whoever I encounter. That's anyway, that's how I take it. It's meant to be very, very broad. All right, we'll go to number three. Zach Willis says, can you give some more information on the mid-acts movement? It sounds biblical. Appreciate your hard work and deep study. I don't remember giving any information, Zach. I'm sorry, on the mid-acts movement? What is the mid-acts movement? I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm Googling it. <laughs> oh, it's, okay, I don't know if it's actually a movement. Um, but it's it referring to a, dis, a view of dispensationalism. Okay, so I was thinking you were talking about like a movement, like a group of people. I guess I don't know much about this. Uh, dispensationalism, this is on gotquestions.org, which by the way, gotquestions is a, is a pretty reliable and, and good site, generally speaking. I do recommend it. Uh, dispensationalism is a theological system that recognizes various ages or dispensations ordained by God to instruct mankind on how to re rightly relate to him. Classic dispensationalism typically sees seven dispensations, starting with the age of innocence in the Garden of Eden and the ending of the age in the millennial kingdom. The current age, called the Age of Grace, or the Church Age, is held by most dispensationalists as having begun in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Okay, so we're in this day of grace or, or the, the time of the Gentiles, some would call it, right? And they would say, oh, that started in Acts 2. 
okay, that's what a lot of people might say. I'm not picking a side on that. Um, okay, then it, that's when the Holy Spirit came. Then the article goes on and says, however, mid-Acts dispensationalism sees the event as still part of the dispensation of the law. The church in the first part of Acts was a Jewish congregation under Jewish rules, not the church of the church age. According to mid-Acts dispensationalism, or Pauline dispensationalism, the church began with the ministry of the apostle Paul in either Acts 9, Paul's conversion, or Acts 13, Paul's first missionary journey. Um, so I, I obviously can't comment on this in deep as a, in a deeply informed way, which is my preference. I will say, first blush, hearing this, is um, this seems to be about separating Judaism from, Christi from, from Christianity in a, in a way that is greater than what scripture would warrant. Ephesians talks about that middle wall of separation coming down and the joining of the Jew and Gentile. There is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ. Um, I don't think there's any good reason, off, off the top of my head I'll admit, <laughs> for thinking that the church didn't begin until Paul's ministry. Um, the term church, ecclesia, in scripture is used of more than the gatherings after the time of Paul doing his apostolic ministry. He is an apostle to the Gentiles, but he's joining them into the same body as the, in, in fact, Acts 10 might be a good refutation of this, right? Because Acts 10 is, first off, it's pre-Pauline, but also it involves the incorporating of Gentiles into the church. And Peter goes to Cornelius, this, this, this Gentile, and he's preaching to him, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And the message, the overall message of Acts 10, to, to give a short answer instead of a long one, is that um, these Gentiles are part of the same group as the Acts 2 group. And if you look at the parallels from Acts 2 to Acts 10, the Spirit falls upon them, they speak in tongues, and it's the promise of the Father that is falling upon them, upon the Jewish people. In Acts 10, it happens to the, the, the same way to these Gentiles. Peter acknowledges, as you read his description of that event, this is all important specific points, Peter acknowledges that um, that this is the same promise from the Father that fell on them, and then they incorporate them into the same body without requiring them to be circumcised. They're all part of the same church. So th this is really significant to me. Um, I am, my okay, my gut reaction, right? Because sometimes your gut reaction, and then you do some more research, and you go, oh, I see it. My gut reaction would be to be deeply concerned about somebody who is dipping into this, this separating the church into... Jewish and Gentile and pre-Jew and, and post-Jew, post-Paul, post-Paul the Apostle kind of stuff. I would be very concerned about that. If there's a whole movement associated with it, I suspect um, it's, a, it's a concerning movement that I, I, would, I would have red flags going off in my head about it. So there, there's my, my gut reaction, just to give you something to think about. I hope you guys consider that with a grain of salt because I haven't spent a lot of time on it, right? So this isn't my definitive word. This is just some things to consider. And we'll go to the next question from Philagape, who says, if I were to doubt Christianity, I don't, but if he was, uh, it would be because of a lack of holiness. Christians seem to be jerks at the same rate as the world or more. Why is this if we have the Holy Spirit? Um, are Christians jerks at, at a higher rate than the world? I don't know if, I don't know if that's true, to be honest. So one of the concerns with how, okay, we may have a, we may not be very good at measuring jerkness in life. Um, the world certainly has different standards 
for being a good person than Christians do. And so in a sense, you could say, well, if I'm measuring Christians by the world's standards of what is generally, this is a good person, and then I measure the world by those standards, I, and how do they compare? But what if I measure them by Christian standards of what is a good person? Now, how do, how do they compare Christians versus the world? Now, I'm, I'm not weighing in on this. I'm just saying it, this is something that to me seems very arbitrary. What standards am I using to measure this goodness? Christianity has a very low estimation of the actual goodness of people. Very, very low. Um, so Jesus says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. This is something he says in the Sermon on the Mount. One of my favorite verses from Jesus because it so helpfully destroys false stereotypes about Jesus and his teachings. But this means that Jesus thinks that you giving good things to your kids does not make you good. So like the world standards, you're, you're a better person because you give your gifts, good gifts to your kids. Jesus talks about people who were outwardly nice and outwardly kind, but inwardly they have all these issues. And that's a big, important measure of goodness on Christian values. Now, the Christian measure of goodness is going to make everybody more of a jerk, to be honest. The worldly measure is going to probably make a lot more people better at least in your estimation. The other thing is, um, I don't know if you're really measuring things rightly or if we're just getting more and more biased against Christians here, where it's almost like the the Christians, the religious stigma, right? They're just these uh, Christians, uh, Christians, Christians, uh, Christians, these evangelicals. And it's all becoming like spit language against, against believers. I'm concerned that that does happen. Um, I'm not sure that it's true that Christians are more of jerks or even at the same rate than the world, nor do I think I'm in a position to measure those things. I mean, how do you measure this stuff? You're just going off your gut. Okay, so um, that being said, um, is there a lack of holiness? I, I think every Christian has had a lack of holiness. Pretty much every Christian has. The world absolutely has a lack of holiness. Uh, but yeah, th th this issue... I remember, um, I remember seeing people go down this road where they become more and more critical over time of religious people and people in church, and they become less and less critical. And you, you hear it in their language. Um, oh, you know, these people in church, they're the problem. Jesus always had a problem with the religious people, which is not actually factually true. Um, it's a distortion. And, you know, you know, the, I want to hang out with the real people. I'd rather be in the bowling alley. I'd rather be at the bar. I'd rather be in all these other things. Um, there's something going on there that is difficult to put my finger on that doesn't seem healthy. It seems like a distortion that's going on. And so I've, I've met people like this. I have conversations with people like this. They think, you know, the non-believers I know are, are, are nicer, more open people than the believers I know. And we had a conversation not long ago with someone. And then they... They said this, and then they said, well, of course, there's the fact that, you know, they don't have religious commitments, and so, you know, there, there's none of that tension. And so they were evaluating people's goodness based on how nice and polite they were, and they thought, with when you remove the tension of obedience to Jesus, belief in God, the necessity of salvation, it makes it a lot easier to get along with different people. So by that measure, they were like, yeah, non-Christians are kind of godlier. But that's not really a measure for godliness, is it? It's more of a measure for... Uh, how easy it is to get along in spite of your rejection of God. <laughs> anyway, this stuff gets complicated. That would be my thing is that I think there's complicated things going on in your head if if, if anybody, Philagape, you or anybody else, started thinking, Christians aren't holy enough. 
you can do one thing to test this a little bit for yourself. Are you personally, you know you more than anybody else, are you more holy because of Christ? And if your answer to that is no, my answer is maybe you're not really Christian. And if your answer is yes, then I'll say you have at least one big defeater for the idea that being Christian somehow makes you less holy. And it makes little sense. Like if you're an actual follower of Jesus, who's like, love your enemies, do good to those who, who, who curse you, who hate you, bless them, who, who doesn't do harm, who lives self-sacrificially and teaches us to follow in his steps, tells us to take care of our neighbor, no matter who they are. Like, how, how does this not make you a better person if you're, if you're genuine about it? I don't know. I guess I find the whole thing confusing. All right, number five, Fierce Nile Blood Squad says, who was walking in the garden in Genesis 3, verse 8? Was it Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, or all three? Okay, well, I can't pretend to have the definitive answer, but let's just look at it together and think about it. Genesis 3, 8, this is, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden, here, Adam and Eve, this is, this is early days, okay? And Genesis 3, 8 says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and that man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now some would say, well, it's, it's purely metaphor. I think that that seems to be ruled out um, because Adam and Eve are not metaphors, even if there is some sort of um, uh, typology with Adam and Eve relating to all humankind and all, all men and all women. But Adam and Eve are not metaphors here. The, they heard the sound. Notice how it happens. They hear a noise. And so it's God walking in the cool, which means that his walking is interacting somehow. His walking is creating sounds. So this implies that there's like a physicality to what is happening here. God walking in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. So they, this is something they felt they could hide themselves from. So it's God is omnipresent according to scripture. He already knows everything and he, he sees everywhere and all that. He transcends space. But there is some real manifestation going on in the text here. Now, there are different views of Genesis that I that fit within a genuine Christian's, you know, head. <laughs> um, and so one of the views of Genesis is um, this is this is um, like a um, I'm going to use my own term here because I don't want to use the term they use because it, it confuses people. But archetypal history. And what we're seeing here is not that these events all took place as they're recorded, but something like this happened. And we're summarizing the, the gravity of it all with, um, with both historical and archetype language. Okay, I'm not saying this is my view, but I do think real Christians have this view. And so my view on Genesis is I'm, I'm here's where I'm, I'm, I am still seeking. Okay. But I will clamp down if I, if I can on something. Um, so th that view would say, oh, I don't have to really explain God walking in the cool of the garden because I know there's some archetypal elements that are going on here. So I don't have to ask what was the actual physical reality of God walking in the garden. Um, then there's a more literal view, right? Where they take it more straightforward history and both view it as historical, but some view it as historical plus archetypal language. Okay, so, but the more literal view is like, hey, God's walking in the garden. You got to explain how he physically walked in the garden. And for that, um, I would refer you to my series on Jesus and how to find Jesus in the Old Testament. I'll link it down below after the stream. Highly recommend it. It's my favorite thing I've ever taught. It's over 20 parts. 
of just discovering Jesus in the Old Testament. And we talk about, in, in that series, we talk about Christophanies. In fact, I'll link the specific video to where I talk about this and other Christophanies. Um, I think that Jesus, and we have several reasons in Scripture to support this, at least imp imply that it's the case, that when we have God appearing in the Old Testament in a very present sense, that it is frequently Jesus or the second person of the Trinity that is being highlighted there. And that would be my default position on these things. And so there's a bunch of reasons for this that I go over in that video on Christology and, and Christophanies, specifically Christophanies. I talk about this passage specifically. But a couple of them could be that Jesus, the, the scripture seems to indicate that it was Jesus who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Um, it seems to imply that the angel of the Lord, the phrase the angel of the Lord, whenever you see that in the Old Testament, and it never occurs with the article in the New Testament, even if your English translation does that, it's not really there. Um, but in the Old Testament, it it seems to always be, in my opinion here, and in some cases clearly be, many cases it's clear, in some it seems like it implied, that this is actually a Christophany. This is an appearance of God with us. Not Jesus taking on human form, like being born and living a human life and having the frailties, but Jesus coming and appearing, the second person coming and appearing, with some sort of manifested form that is not truly human, not descended from Adam, not 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 born and living a life. As, so he's not incarnated in the sense of the New Testament. That only happened once. But he's appearing with some manifested physical form to, because it, basically Jesus has always been the one who's going between the Father and us. He's always been that one mediating. That's That's the basic idea that's there. So... That'd be my view, and I will link my video on Christophanies for more details down below. Um, hope that gives you guys some, some stuff to think biblically about. All right, number six. Orange Carpet says, what are your thoughts on Anglo-Israelism or British Israelism? I probably have no thoughts on this. It is the belief that America and the British Commonwealth are physical descendants of Israel. I enjoy your work, thanks. Oh, okay. Um... America and the British Commonwealth are physical descendants of Israel. I mean, my, my gut reaction is is that that seems um, unlikely. There's a, there's definitely blending that goes in to some degrees. You know, there's 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 you know I I pro there's a good chance I have some Jewish blood in me, but I wouldn't consider myself Jewish, um, and nobody in my family has, to my knowledge, in any of the generations I've been aware of. Um, so there's some blending there, but this is a bigger claim than that. That this this seems to be a claim that that British America and the British Commonwealth are physical descendants of Israel. I mean, America comes from so many places. I live in Southern California, right? Like, like I I'm Mike, the white guy. I'm a minority in my community where I live in Long Beach. So this is um, this is America. America's there's varied. You know, like we have the largest Cambodian population outside Cambodia here in the U.S. in in Long Beach, actually. We've, we've got such huge varieties of different groups of people in America. It just seems weird to say that America is fill-in-the-blank anything. You know, people come from all over the place. The Irish, that's much of my ancestry is Irish, okay? So I, I'm, I'm skeptical of such claims. And then I wonder, I wonder, do they also, on top of saying that the, the Brits and, and America are Israel, the physical descendants of Israel, are they saying the Jews are not? The, the, the Jews in Israel are not Jews? I think a, def a good default position is this. If <laughs> This might sound a little clumsy, but if your family history is telling you you're Jewish, there's a good chance you are. 
But if your family history is not telling you're Jewish, there's a good chance you're not. My family history doesn't tell me that. There's a pretty good chance, more often than not, your family memory is going to be pretty accurate about where you guys came from. If there's always outliers, there's always people that are wildly wrong for some reason, but I think that we can trust that. Um, but often what I've seen with people who want to say, these people are Jewish, is, is they're often trying to say, those Israelis are not Jewish. And that's where I, I would have concerns. Because I'm like, what is my agenda here? What is What am I getting out of taking away the Israel legacy that these people claim that they have? And what else am I saying about them? Am I, am I turning them into this vilified group? Is this, is this moving towards anti-Semitism? Um, those are questions I would have about it. Don't know the answers though, sorry. Number seven, Aaron says, how do you test word of faith prophecy when it sounds more like insight slash encouragement, not foretelling or future events? What should modern prophecy sound like? I've learned much, so much from you. Thank you. Aaron, um, I want to try to have a conservative perspective on this. So I'm not opposed to someone prophesying to me. Hey, if you have a prophecy for me and it's legit and you know that it's legit, then you can send it on in through the website. <laughs> um, but I have had things where people sent stuff and it was a little weird. And I would say that that, happening, that happens at such a high rate that I'm naturally skeptical when someone comes up to me to say they have a word from, from God for me, especially a stranger. So one thing I would look for with this is if someone's going to give you prophetic word of some kind, I'd like to know them personally. I'd like them to be part of the community and have a reputation for accuracy and reliability, not just for being super spiritual. Some people have a reputation for being super spiritual, but they're not, they're not consistently accurate and reliable. And that to me, I'm like, you may not be spiritual. You might just talk good. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other things I would consider is if you have a prophecy that's merely an encouragement, right? Like, Hey, I just want to encourage you to press on in faith and, and keep your eyes on Jesus. And you know, right now is, a, is, is an important time for you to just stay focused upon him, read the word. Like, you know, that's generally good advice. Like if the prophecy is just generally good advice, it doesn't have to be a prophecy to also encourage you. You don't have to decide whether it's prophetic or not. If it's something that is future, like you should do this with your life, maybe it's not future uh, prediction, but it's a future command. It's like what you need to do with your life. Like God's calling you to go to China. He's calling you and your family to be missionaries in China. I'm like, unless I have strong reason to think that that's truly God, I'm not going to just go do it. Like I'm not. Like people can't just, just run up and randomly claim to proclaim things in the name of God and control your life. This is not wisdom to do this. For every, every time in, in, in Israel where there's a prophet, there's also false prophets. And often there's, they outnumber the, the true. And so we have to be very wise and discerning about these things. Um, I would look for some kind of confirmation in the form of like reliable people saying this. The Lord showing you in some other really clear way. Um, nor do I expect prophecy in my life. Uh, if it comes, great. Uh, but I don't, I, don't, I don't expect it. I don't rely on it. I don't need it to feel like I'm spiritual or feel like I'm connected to God. I don't need that. Uh, that's a healthy thing, I think, for us. So if it, on the other hand, um, it's a statement about a future event and you're, not, you're just not sure, you're like, I just don't know if it's true, then it's, it's okay. This is something these guys will never tell you, but it's okay for you to just slow your roll and be like, look, I heard what they said and they said this was going to happen, but I'm not confident that they 
are right. I trust the Lord, but I don't know if I trust their discernment about this thing. So in the New Testament, there was prophecy, but it it would go through a judgment process. And this was um this was consistent. They would say in Corinth, someone brings up a prophecy, some some prophetic statement. The leaders that are there would then test and judge that statement to help you process through this. So maybe an additional step is to bring in spiritual leaders who you respect, who are wise and godly, to help them test and consider those things. And uh, random people on YouTube saying, God showed me, God told me, and then they make all these statements like, you gotta, you know, show me your track record, otherwise I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, but it's prophecy was more in normal community. It, the the the, pro, the the YouTube prophet people have prove your track record first, and um and often this is when you find out that you should have ignored them the whole time. I hate to say it; it's just a sad reality. So I don't despise prophecy, but I want to test all things. Scripture says. So let's go to number eight, and this is um Aaron. And I'm sorry, uh, Angel WVM, who says, "Would a deathbed conversion work?" if the main driving factor is the fear of hell rather than choosing to trust God. Um, I don't know why that wouldn't work. So, I think fear of hell is a perfectly fine motivation. Um, it's not the most noble motivation. But l let's say that you, um, you have a heart attack and this triggers, this fear of death triggers you to start going to the gym and start eating better. That's a sad reality that that was your motivation. But it's still better than you not doing. <laughs> so if you trust in God, I mean, Jesus said, let me just read you his words here so that we can understand this, uh, hopefully a little better. Um, so Luke 12, 5. There it is for you. He says, um, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is the idea of fearing God and it involves trust, but it also involves a sober awareness of the fact that he can bring judgment down upon us. This is a very real, a very real truth. If that was your only reason, is, is fear of hell, that you turned and trusted in Christ on your deathbed, would it work? I, I, I believe it would. Now, does that mean I'm going to go and that's my my tactic, is to create this kind of thing? Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But I, I don't see why that wouldn't be, why that would be a problem. You said it was, um, the main factor was fearing hell, not choosing to trust God. But I don't see how you can actually truly separate those things, because if you do fear hell, but you turn to God as the solution for your fear, then you are choosing to trust God, aren't you? Right. So, so fear might be a motivator to action, but the action you take is trusting in Christ. That's the key. Are you saved? Well, did you put your faith and trust in Christ? I absolutely did. I absolutely believed. And I turned from, from, from that self-life or the sinful stuff, and I, I focused my heart and my life on Christ. I trust. Well, why did you do it? Man, I got the sudden fear of hell. Oh, that's totally appropriate. Now, as you move forward in your Christian life, hopefully you move more and more into a place where fear may have driven you to the cross, but the cross is now what drives you forward, where you, you're now you're trusting in the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. You trust in the security you have in Christ. I'm not abandoned. I'm not forsaken. I'm not going to hell. I have his grace on me every day, and now I live for his love, and now I live for his goodness, 
and this is part of your sanctification is these motives and these reasons growing in goodness in your life. Um, so I, I think, yeah, fear of hell leading people to the cross is great, but the cross needs to lead them forward. Okay, anonymous question says, what advice can you give to parents in these times to help them raise children who choose to trust and follow Jesus later in life? Can you do a biblical parenting series, short or long? Uh, I cannot do that. I don't have the capacity for it. I've many years as a youth pastor, I'm not a parent. Um, so I, I wouldn't pretend to. I think that um, one of the things that might help is resources of, for people who are good at this and very capable at this. So Natasha Crane has great resources. She's an author. Just Google her, look at her book up. She's got a book called, her books, pull her books up. Um, book called Keeping Your Kids on God's Side. Um, and there's other ones too that she's written that are very good. Um, because they're going to, your kids are going to encounter not only worldliness, but also unbelief. You need to do worldview training with them, most likely in this current climate. And so I'll point you to other resources for that. So foundationworldview.com is a website where a, a lady named Elizabeth Urbanowix is using very, very thoughtful and careful um, teaching techniques and good, good, like how you can teach kids well. <laughs> she's using these techniques. This is what she's focused her her work on is learning teaching techniques for kids, but focusing it on tackling those worldview issues and focusing them on kids. So having a program like Foundation Worldview is great. They don't give me nothing for what they do. I just think that they do a great job. And um, I, nobody sponsors me, guys. Nobody. I mean, people who support the ministry sponsor, but that's so I can not have to worry about any of that. I'll never sell you anything. In fact, there are t-shirts available, Bible Thinker t-shirts. I don't even have links for them. Maybe I should do that. We don't make anything on those shirts. I just did that because you guys wanted them, right? I don't make any of that. There's no super chats. The money, there's no money coming into this ministry from, or to my pocket from from those types of things. Um, I run ads on YouTube because YouTube doesn't promote your videos as much if you don't run ads, and so that that's one of the big reasons for that. I, I don't want to not reach people, but there's yeah. Anyway, uh, I'm getting sidetracked. Forgive me, but the um, foundationworldview.com is another one. Uh, another one, Mama Bear Apologetics seems like they have really good resources. That's another thing to Google, Mama Bear Apologetics. Uh, I think that one thing a parent would be healthy for parents, okay, speaking as like a youth pastor here for many years, would be to recognize that um, the responsibility for discipling your kids is not is not primarily the local church, but it's primarily you. And that's hard, and that's difficult, and that takes a lot of time. But dropping your kids off at church or even taking them to Christian school is not the discipleship solution for them. They, they really need a lot from you. And statistically, even somewhat recent statistics showed this when they when they demonstrated that the primary influence for kids having and holding long-term faith is consistent parents who not only believe these things, but actually live it out. So my only advice that I could give that won't be more detailed, I would point to those other resources for details, would be you be an amazing disciple of Christ who is super serious and intentional about really following Jesus in your life, not just attending church. Really, really serious about genuinely following Christ in your character and not just in the things you don't do, but in your godly character and your love and your self-sacrificial behaviors and your consistency with knowing God, knowing his word and living it out. If you're really thoroughly consistent, that's going to be the foundation for you helping disciple someone else. Otherwise, it turns into a potential hypocrisy, I guess. Joshua Bernard says, if someone is thinking that they might not be saved, seeing their sinfulness, what should they do? Not sinning feels sort of 
I'll just read this the way you wrote it. Not sinning feels sort of seems like a band-aid on the problem. Hmm. Yeah, in a sense, it's like a band-aid. Um, the way the way I understand this, and I'll give you my short summary here, is that sin in the life of a, of a person who says they're a Christian, because everybody can say they're a Christian. Um, I can even kid myself. I can even deceive myself. How, how do you know, Mike, you can deceive yourself? Well, Jesus says that many will say to him, Lord, Lord. But then he'll tell them, I never knew you. Now think about this. They call, they're going to call him Lord because in their mind, they thought they were saved. And he tells them, I never knew you. And one of the ways in which he points to the fact that they didn't know him is the life that they lived. So I think that we get saved by faith alone, but that if my faith is genuine, I'm believing in the real Jesus. I'm encountering him. The Holy Spirit enters my life. I really believe and commit to Christ and he's working inwardly in my life. So therefore my life will change. Faith will lead to works, right? Faith, it's not faith plus works equals salvation. That's a bad formula. Faith plus works equals, it's rather faith equals salvation plus works. So works are a symptom to show the genuineness of your faith. Works are a symptom to show the reality of your salvation. So if works are missing, if godliness in my life is missing, at some point I ask, am I a struggling Christian or am I a fake Christian? Hardest question to possibly ask, but I would be doing you a disservice if I tried to keep you from asking it. If you are really, really seriously dealing with continual sinful compromise. So, um, that being said, I think there's I think there's tons of grace for Christians. I'm not saying, okay, if you did this, you're not a believer. If you did this, you're not. I'm saying that the question is out there in Scripture, and it should be out there for us to talk about as well. But what's the solution? Is my solution, oh, just don't sin, just don't sin. Then I'll feel better. My symptom will look better. But is my salvation actually in order? So I think the first solution is go back to the cross. Tell that person who's dealing with sins and go back to the cross. And ask yourself this, is there an area in which your faith in Jesus is currently lacking your faith in his power for you to overcome this sin, your, your faith in his grace to forgive you, your faith in, in, in the death he died, the life he lived, that would be the first thing I would look at. And then I would say, but am I really committed to Christ? Because faith implies commitment. Am I really committed to Christ? Turn that commitment over to Christ um, and then watch the sin issue hopefully got, you know, get better. But, but the, you know, the danger here is, is how do you, you know, what the false positives are a, a concern where someone goes, well, of course there's sin in my life. Every Christian has sin in their life. I'm sorry, they do. I've met, I met a couple people who said like, I haven't sinned. I saw one guy, one preacher online was like, I haven't sinned since the day I got saved. And I was just like, oh man, that guy's got serious problems. Like what's worse than you sinning is you sinning and you don't even know. <laughs> The pride and the selfishness and the pettiness and all the things that happen, um, but the um, the this guy. Anyway, the the other side of things is the false pauses where people all they all recognize like I sin and I deal with sin on a, on a daily basis and I struggle with sin, and so where when do I at what point do I say maybe I'm not saved because of this sin? I, I think one way in which I examine myself here and I hope it's helpful for others is I. I honestly ask, what does my life look like now compared to what it would look like if I was not a Christian? If I wasn't a follower of Jesus, how different would my life look? And there I can say there's these real measurable differences. Like I can, be, if I'm very honest with myself, I go, yeah, it, I, would be a, I would be different in many important ways 
and not just with having a YouTube channel or having an online ministry, but in important ways in, in my interactions with other people and the way that I treat them. And if you see that your non-Christian self and your Christian self would be the same basic behaviors, that's a sign that maybe there's something seriously missing. Um, I, I hope that that helps. Um, all Christians struggle with sin. Don't immediately assume that you're not saved, please. Uh, number 11, Paul 4 says, why is it improper to refer to God as they instead of he, since he is three persons? Example of problem, quote, he spoke to Job out of the storm, tends to make us think the Father alone is speaking. Um, well, when it comes to the to understanding and being consistent with the doctrine of the Trinity, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, the terminology is difficult. Um, God is amazing. God is above and beyond us. I'm not surprised that our English language struggles sometimes to get this across. But what we don't want to do is blatantly miscommunicate it. And that's where if you say they in reference to God, then it can be a problem. Because what you're communicating with three persons, one God, you could be communicating that there's multiple gods. And that is not the doctrine of the Trinity. That is not what Scripture has revealed. There is only one God. So we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. So when he spoke to Job out of the storm, you see this phrase, it could be referring to the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, or it could be referring to all three, because each of them is God. Do you see what I'm trying to communicate here is that I, I want to affirm the, 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 the Trinity, but that includes affirming there's only one God. This is why uh, casually using pluralities to talk about God can be dangerous. The Old Testament uh, does this, um, doesn't do this, but it, but it does flirt with this slightly because the word Elohim is a plural. Elohim, when you put an, an im, you know, in English it's I am, when you put this at the end of a Hebrew word, it pluralizes the word. But that's not enough to make there multiple gods. So Elohim here doesn't mean God's plural with an S because it's not partnered with another word in the sentence that's plural. It's partnered with a singular word. And so here they're kind of, you see they're sort of flirting with a sense of plurality in God, which some would say, well, that just means his majesty or that's just his exaltedness. We're, we're pluralizing Elohim now for his exalted nature. And others would suggest the Trinity is, is implied there as well. I'll, I would just say it this way, is it's, it's consistent with the Trinity. Not necessarily that that's teaching the Trinity, but that it's consistent with the Trinity and that's interesting to me. Um, but the New Testament usually uses the term God to refer to the Father specifically um, when there's a specific person of the Trinity in reference. Sometimes it's God and you couldn't possibly tell. Is it the Father, Son, Spirit? I don't know. Um, when the Father is in view, it will often say God specifically. When the Son is in view, it will rarely say God. And when the Holy Spirit's in view, it will also rarely say God. But you can use the term for all, all three persons of the Trinity. Number 12, um, anonymous question here. If a man's pre-salvation life is especially disgraceful, could he ever truly be above reproach? 1 Timothy 3, 2. We'll read that verse in a second. Could old sin then, even if confessed, disqualify him from being a pastor or elder? Um, okay, this gets, this gets difficult. Um, there's an easy part and there's a hard part. Let's talk about the easy part first. So here it says an elder or an overseer, same thing. Elders, overseers, bishops, biblically, these are synonymous terms. Lots of groups have 
this is the bishop, this is the, they're the same thing in, in, in the scripture. So therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. These are the requirements of what he has to be, right? You could read on, not a drunkard. What if he was a drunkard? Not violent. What if he was violent, right? Not quarrelsome. What if he was quarrelsome before he was saved? Not a lover of money. What if that's all he loved before he got saved, right? He must manage his own household well. What if he didn't use to manage his household well? So what if he used to be none of those things and was actually really bad? Um, can he be in ministry? And I think the answer is yes. This, these, are, these are present tense verbs. Must be above reproach. Not must have always been above reproach. Must be above reproach. So that alone shows that if nothing else, this verse doesn't rule out him having bad behaviors in the past. It's, the, it's, it's who he is now that we're looking at. The general flavor of Christianity is such that we would encourage people into ministry who have had changed lives if their lives have really been changed. They have to actually be these things. Right? So you, you can't be like, I'm better now, but you're not really better. Like Then you don't qualify. Um, but Paul the Apostle is an interesting example in Scripture. And he even presents himself to the, to the world like, hey, I'm an example of God's grace and mercy. And he talks about how not only God saved him, who was formerly a persecutor, right, a blasphemer, who attacked and wanted to destroy the church. You have to understand that Paul would, think about this, Paul would, would one day run into a Christian and he was going to teach them about the gospel, teach them about the, the, de the deep things of Christ. And he had at one point previously put that same guy in prison. At one point previously, he had taken that guy's wife, interrogated her, tried to get her to blaspheme the name of Jesus, and then threw her in prison. Paul would hang out with the apostles who knew and loved Stephen. But Paul the apostle, before he was Christian, before he was saved, he guarded the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen to death so they wouldn't get blood on their clothes. And he was standing there guarding their clothes. I'll, I'll watch your clothes. Proving. If Paul the Apostle can be put into ministry, this is the easy part, <laughs> then who can't? Like, if your life has truly changed. Now, to show that a life has changed, I don't just want to hear someone say, oh, and this is where it gets a little more difficult. I don't just want to hear somebody say, like, I'm a Christian now, and we act like their life. They have to have a show proven character over a long season of time. Paul actually talks about this too. One of the requirements for people in ministry um, who are getting, like, kind of ordained to ministry is not a novice. What does that mean, not a novice? It's First Timothy three six. I'll put it on your screen. Um, ba, 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 there it is. Not a novice. After giving requirements, the same ones we've just been reading, it says that the guy can't be a novice. Now this doesn't mean a young person. It means a new newer believer. They could be fifty years old. They get saved, but they're, they're still a novice in Christ. Why? Because no, here's here you know there's too many traps. Like they might get puffed up with pride, fall into the condemnation of the enemy that sort of thing. In general, we want to see um, a long season of faithfulness, especially if there was a long season of unfaithfulness that preceded it, so that we can really demonstrate things. Um, now, on the other hand, let's say that somebody it was a sexual predator in the past. Now, sexual, not, not someone who had sexual sin in their life, a predator. This is, to me, a different issue, a more challenging issue, because if it, let's say that a person had um, uh, molested uh, their, their stepdaughter. And then they get saved, and now they want to serve in ministry. And maybe we're looking at them and mostly that they're, they're there. But the thing is that the type of sin they committed in the past, 
while maybe they've really overcome it, maybe it's better now, maybe they're godly now, maybe it would never happen again. It's difficult for us to know that because that kind of sin, sexual predatory behavior, is exactly the kind of sin you don't find out about unless something wild happens that shows it to you. And these, so there are certain sins that it's like, it's not, I'm, I'm not saying one sin's worse than another, although although many sins are worse than others and sexual predation is, is a much worse sin overall. But I'm making a different observation here and that is um, if somebody has a sin like that that is hidden and that involves them manipulating and using access that they have to other people in order to take advantage of those people and cause them harm in secretive ways, it's very difficult to know whether or not they've really overcome it. And so that's a, that's a challenge that is is hard. Do I know that he's above reproach? I don't know. It's hard to tell now. It's very difficult to tell at that point. So I'm not saying it's the unforgivable sin or anything like that, but I'm saying to be responsible as those who are appointing others in ministry, we need to know, have really good reason to believe that this, this would never possibly happen. And it's hard to know that if someone did something so horrific in the past. It's, oh, he's a new person in Christ. Yeah, but you still have the flesh with you and that same flesh will tempt you. So how do we test to prove that this has changed? That's a challenge I don't, I don't know how to answer on certain issues. Number 13, Joey, or Joe, excuse me, Joe. I'm sorry, Joe. Joe says, hey, Pastor Mike, in your study of Bible translations, have you ever looked at the Geneva Bible uh, that I believe the pilgrims used? What is its textual basis? Do you think Christians should read it? I don't, you know, it's been a long time since I looked into the Geneva Bible. Um, the King James had a particular couple issues like, the the that were and, and and just in a couple places were influenced even by the king and the baptist leaning so like john the baptist is translated certain ways because of the, like that was a decision that someone made um so there's a couple issues like that that are in the king james that the geneva bible i think meant to correct and so i think one of them was the the naming of john the baptist if i if i remember right you, and you can see if i'm correct here I don't consider it a test of my memory. It's just accuracy is important. You look up the Geneva Bible uh, and the way it describes John. But um, but there were other things too. Um, so there was a couple issues related to baptism that I think the Geneva Bible seemed more accurate on. Um, what else? Yeah, no, I, I don't really remember much else about it. Um, is it a, a translation I would recommend you use today? No. As a secondary or tertiary translation, sure, yeah. I mean, th that's always interesting to read other trans multiple translations. But I wouldn't recommend any primary translation when it was translated with 400-plus-year-old English. Uh, this is um, obviously a very hot-button point of debate with people, but language changes over time. It changes rather significantly over time. Words actually change meaning. If you're going to read the King James or the Geneva Bible, you need to get a dictionary that has language from that time period so that you can continually look up these words because in many cases, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, like there are, and it's some words like you just read and you go, I don't know what that means. That's not that bad, you'll look it up. But there are actually some words that have changed meanings, meaning it literally means something different to you than it meant to the person who wrote that. So th for this reason, I struggle recommending um, some of the older translations as a primary text. I did once talk to a, a children's ministry and they used King James Version in their entire church, right? And um, their children's ministry used it. And I just asked them, they had the children's ministry leader there visiting us at the school I was at. 
And I asked, I was like, how do you overcome the difficulty of children with the King James Version? And I'm just thinking very simply, kids are still learning language and they never hear language that way. And so it's just going to be more novel to them. And so I'm concerned they might not understand scripture as well. They'll understand much, but as well. I was wondering if he did anything to help the kids. I was curious, how does this play out? And he was like, oh, they understand it fine. There's no issues there. And I just thought, um, to be honest, I thought, oh, he's just going to pretend there's not a problem. <laughs> um, we shouldn't do that. We should at least address things, consider them. Anyway, th those are just my thoughts. You know, the Q&A, the nature of the Q&A, guys, every week is that you get my my off-the-cuff thoughts. Hopefully, I'm giving you something that's, you know, at least going to motivate you in your thinking about things and hopefully is, are good answers and thoughtful and true answers, <laughs> God willing, I hope. Um, but uh, but there, give you something to think about. And for those who don't know, if you wait a couple hours after the stream, we'll put timestamps down below and you can actually navigate to just the questions you're interested in. We just want this to serve you. As I'm not... It's not that I require you to watch long videos. It's I just want to create the resources that will bless you, hopefully. Um, although I would do make long videos. All right, number 14, Slayer P3 says, given the resurgence of psychedelics for recreation and therapeutic use in Western society, is there room for it in Christianity or should its use stay separate from spiritual practice um, agnostic? I don't know what the word agnostic meant there at the end, but... Um, psychedelics for recreation and therapeutic use in Western society. I, I mean, I, I have to admit, I'm generally very skeptical. This to me seems like an unhealthy trend. I'm just being person, my personal opinion here. When it comes to scripture, I would like to do more study on my own of the term pharmakia. Um, this is the, this is the word translated as sorcery or witchcraft in the New Testament. It's a Greek word, pharmakia. Um, we do get our modern English word pharmacy or pharmaceutical from it, but it's not the same word. It doesn't mean pharmacy. It doesn't mean pharmaceutical. I'm just, that's a misnomer. P people think that it's not quite true. Um, but the reason why I do, re I would do research on it to help answer this question better one day is because I would like to understand if there is implicit judgment against using psychedelics in general. Um, because of the way that they would be used to, en to engage in spiritual activities. I would be concerned about that. I don't really know the answer to that question, so I, I can't really comment. I will say this, though. Um, while I'm not going to comment on therapeutic use, um, and that's on purpose, let me, let me put it, I'll give you an example. Um, please don't take morphine, you guys. Please don't take morphine. Did you just have surgery? Take some morphine. <laughs> I mean, obviously, when it's legitimate medicinal uses, legitimate and there's a big question of whether different uses are actually legitimate or not. But if they are legitimate, then I'm not opposed to hardly any drugs in principle. Like, I think that that might be the right place for it. It might be the best opportunity for it, especially like palliative care. We give people to stuff when they're on palliative care, when they're, when they're on their deathbed. We give people things that we would never give them on a daily life basis because of the harm it might cause, because of the addiction it might cause. And I'm okay with that because the person's on their deathbed. So I think Proverbs almost makes a case for this. I say almost because it's a little, it, it could be a stretch um, when it talks about giving drink to the one who is, who's perishing. And it's an interesting thing is what it says. Um, um, and I talk about that in my video on alcohol, actually. But, um, 
but aside from medical stuff, okay, because I'm not going to dig into that. Look, there's medical conditions I know nothing about. There's different treatments for them where they carefully regulate all the different things, and there's different studies and case tests and experiences I don't know anything about. So I won't comment on that stuff. But I will comment on this, on the spiritual side of things. Um, taking, say, psychedelics, mushrooms, in order to have an enhanced spiritual experience, to me, seems like a significant problem for a number of reasons. Um, for one, this is how pagan religions and cultures typically do often do their religious things. You know, you smoke the peyote and you see a vision in the fire. That's that's the idea. I think that these tend to be ways of manufacturing fake spiritual experiences as a replacement for the true. The New Testament doesn't have any of this. The Bible doesn't have any of this. I think that what we what we should do is seek genuine spirituality with God, and the fake is dangerous for two reasons. One is I, I don't need this real because I have the fake, and two, because the fake is misleading. It leads to these weird experiences. And um, I remember talking to a, a woman who called herself a Christian missionary, and she had, I, I think that maybe she was using some stuff from, from the Canadian tribes that was up there. And she goes, I had a vision from God. And, and I said, well, what did the vision say? She goes, that there is no judgment, there is only love. And this was the vision she had. There is no judgment, there's only love. And so I shared some scripture with her. I was like, what about this and that? And she, it was the weirdest thing because she goes, well, I believe that. I believe all of those things, but there's no judgment. There's only <laughs> So it was, it was difficult, but she'd had this sort of spiritual experience that she thought would overrule the Bible, but she still wanted to pretend she agreed with the Bible. So she, would be, she said she was a missionary to these different tribes up in, um, up in Canada. I think maybe the Nez Pierce is one of them. Is that right? Maybe. And I asked her, well, then what is your message? When you go on a mission trip, what is the message you tell them? And she goes, I, that there's no judgment. I just tell them there's no judgment. There's only love. And I thought, oh, man. So, it, you know, this is where a fake spiritual experience led to a, an anti-missionary, effectively, because she's, she's telling people they don't need Jesus, effectively. And it's so sad. So I, I'd be concerned about that sort of thing. And that, that's my thoughts for what it's worth. Um, yeah, yeah. I wish I had a more thorough understanding of those issues. Victoria Stewart says, why did the altar in the tabernacle have the horns? Could you please clarify it? Thanks, Mike. So yeah, we read this a lot in the Old Testament, the horns on the altar, the horns on the altar. Now they weren't actually horns, like it wasn't an animal's horn that was on the altar. It's a term that refers to like a protruding corner piece that wasn't necessarily even shaped like a horn. It could be shaped like a, do I have something shaped like that around here? Here, this little, on the gummy bears um, that I have not, I've not been eating. <laughs> so I see this little shape right here. So it might be something like that, like just kind of protruding like a metal piece that protrudes out. Um, the function of the horns in the altar that I can remember off the top of my head are two. One would be tying an animal to the horns of the altar during part of the sacrifices. So it's a, it's a pragmatic value of like, we can actually tie the animal here so it doesn't just run off while we're in the middle of doing a sacrifice. Um, no, Sarah, I will not eat a gummy bear. I haven't had candy in like a month and a half and it seems to be doing good for me. It's the first time in my life I can say I haven't had candy for a month and a half. <laughs> um, but the, uh, so they would tie to the horns of the altar um, an animal. So that was for sacrifice. Another purpose of the horns of the altar would be to and a, a place to appeal for mercy. So if somebody was, say, they were looking for safety, looking for sanctuary, they were being hunted, um, or even even being a, 
hunted by the law, they might run to the temple and grab the horns of the altar. And this was considered a sacred place. And you're appealing to the mercy of the sacrifices, the mercy of God, and the mercy of the people around you as you would literally hold on to the horns. And so there's a law in, in, in scripture where it's like, hey, if somebody commits murder, and if I remember the wording of this, it's something like, um, drag them even from the horns of the altar. So they might be, they're grabbing at the altar for mercy. And it's like, no, 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 you committed murder. The, the blood is in the land. The, the, this, this needs to be dealt with. There needs to be justice. And so they'd be drugged even from the horns of the altar. So th there's the two, you know, uses of the horns that I would, that I would say um, I'm aware of. They weren't literal horns. There's probably more that we could learn about those things. I just don't know it. Sorry. Sarah Corbet says, when we share in Christ's sufferings, does that refer only to suffering that comes in opposition to God's will, or can it also include something like suffering through a disease or a loss? Well, that's tough because, I mean, you know, in a sense, Jesus, let's just talk through this. Jesus took on human form, and so his sufferings included all of the normal human sufferings, including just weeping at Lazarus's funeral, right? So just, just his sharing in Christ's sufferings could just be any suffering. Um, I have an injury, I have a sickness, I have a, a, a deformity of some kind. But are those, you know, those are sufferings Christ experienced that we experience, but are they Christ's sufferings? And here's where I would push back on that view a little bit, and I would say the sufferings of Christ, unless I want to say non-believers are, are experiencing the sufferings of Christ, I need to have a more narrow definition of what that word means. Because non-believers will experience the loss of a child, the loss of a loved one, sickness, issues. I would say Christ experienced their sufferings, but I don't know that they're experiencing Christ's sufferings. Because if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Meaning that there's like a, this is a specific kind of suffering. Maybe I can bring up the scripture for us so that you guys can see it in context a little bit here. Um, Okay, um, and there's a button. All right, so let me back up just a little bit. Um, so God has given us his spirit, and by the spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this idea of suffering with him isn't just experiencing any sufferings that Jesus experienced, but I think it's sufferings that come at the cost of identifying with Christ. That would be how I would define the term. So when I say the sufferings of Christ, I mean suffering I endure because I'm following Jesus. So I decide to follow Jesus and a family member cuts me out, cuts me out. They don't, they don't, they don't want anything to do with me anymore because of, uh, because of this, because I'm religious. <laughs> um, I start following Jesus and I'm I'm like giving money away to, to charity and to, to the church and to ministries and to other people and I'm suffering for that result. I start following Jesus and maybe, um, maybe I lose my job. Uh, maybe various things happen to me that are negative because I, so I follow Christ. You could perhaps say some of the sufferings of Christ is me dying to myself and resisting sin and that sort of thing as well. But I think it has to do with suffering that comes at the cost of identifying with Christ. It costs you something. And most of us have seen that in our lives. And why does it say, if we suffer with him, right, then we'll be glorified? Because let's suppose you're encountering a situation where it's like, look, 
either you tone down this Christian stuff or X bad thing will happen to you. And you go, okay, I'll tone it down. Are you actually getting to the point where you're denying Christ? You, you may apostatize from Christ. You may just say, forget it. Right? When, when Paul was persecuting the church and he was dragging people in, he did get some of them to blaspheme the name of Jesus in order to get out of trouble. This is the idea of, do you stay true to your faith? Is your faith going to stay true? Are you going to persevere in Christ? And that's an issue. Number 17. And, and, and oh, by the way, people may not feel they have any pressure to do this, but I don't think that's true. I think on social media, how many people have, have like these giant YouTube channels, nobody knows they're Christians. Or it comes out that they're Christians and they get all this pushback and then and then and then they go like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not like that guy. And they start backpedaling away from Jesus and away from solid, strong commitments to Christ because it's not pleasant when this happens. So um, the peer pressure is, is for real. I say, when you feel peer pressure, pressure back. All right, go to number 17. And this comes from Luke Start. Hey, Pastor Mike, thank you for your ministry. God used it to lead me to Christ. Luke, I don't want to clap loud because I don't want to like deafen everybody, but Luke, I am thrilled to read the opening even of your question. I hope I have a good answer for you. Brother, I rejoice with you. Heaven rejoices with you. Wonderful. So God used it to lead me to Christ. You said, is hell something that is taking place right now, or is that a future reality after the final judgment? Um, according to the New Testament, it's definitely a future reality. Hell is a future thing. In fact, I would say nobody is in hell at the moment. This gets confusing in our modern translations because sometimes they'll translate different words, Hades and Gehenna, Abuso. They'll translate these different terms the same way. And these are different words. And so you you might like want to go to like Blue Letter Bible or or maybe stepbible.org, which lets you look at some of the words behind the words in the Bible or or something. Find a resource. You know, online you can find all this stuff for free. It's easy. Um and then pull up those verses that talk about hell and just check, like, what is being talked about here? So Hades seems to be a present reality, like a storing location for those who are in judgment, will be judged one day. But hell is a future destination where they will be cast one day, you know, when uh, when final judgment comes, when the final judgment day comes. That That's my understanding of things. Um, in addition to that, I would say that there are those who will sort of turn hell into a metaphor and hell is, hell is, you know, um, people, you know, hating in each, hell is war, war is hell. Like they'll use terms like that. Um, and by that, they, they're taking the term hell and they're turning it into a metaphor for really bad times and really hard situations. And all I'll say is this, that's not how the word is used in scripture. So if I use the word from the Bible in a way that means something totally different than the Bible does, then I can't pretend I'm actually interpreting the bible now right you're yeah so hell in that sense i've heard people say well hell is hell is right here and now um no it's not not biblically not if you're a christian if you want to just make up your own words and make up your own meanings for them but don't put that on christianity it would be my would be my statement so i understand the metaphorical use of the term but that's not a theological use that's not what it means in scripture at least and i wouldn't correct somebody if they wanted if they said like war is is hell if they use that phrase i wouldn't feel I have to like, well, technically, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about it. But when it moves into theology, hell isn't something in the future. It's just, it's right now. We have to, you know, no, it's something in the future. <laughs> All right, number 18, J Dizzy Wizzy says, I'm currently in ju a junior high, a junior in high school, excuse me, junior in high school, 
so 11th grade, and plan to go to a seminary after school to become a preacher. How and where do I start studying the Bible to become a true Bible thinker? Well, Jay Dizzy Wizzy, I have been largely outside of that sort of like path of things, you know. Um, I have found, for me, with no money, I started off with every free resource I could find. So when I was going through, uh, was it Galatians? Yeah, Galatians, the only commentary I could find that was free online at the time, this was many years ago, was Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, right? We're talking, this is like hundreds and hundreds of years old, um, and, and it was the unabridged, but it was free because there's no copyright on it. Well, now there's great resources you can get for free. Um, I would recommend blueletterbible.org has a bunch of really great commentaries that are generally pretty like trustworthy as far as you can spiritually trust a lot of the resources that they tend to put up. At least that's my general opinion. Um, the, it doesn't mean they're right about every issue. I'm going to, you know, we all disagree on different things. Um, so like blueletterbible.org is one resource I would recommend, but more than anything, more than schooling, just you reading the Bible thoughtfully and carefully and asking hard questions. Like when you open your Bible, read a passage and then come up with questions for that passage. Why does it say this? What does he mean by that? Why is this over here and not over there? Why didn't that happen? And then try to answer those questions as you read it in the fuller context. To me, this is this is better than seminary. <laughs> um, and I'd recommend it highly. In addition to that, if you're going to go to seminary, I don't know seminaries that well. I've, I've heard like SES is a pretty solid seminary. Um, I've heard this. I don't really know, okay, because I haven't gone to these institutions. But once you do show up at an institution, you, you, you're there for a long period of time. You're you're probably going to walk out with views a lot like that institution has. So you might want to look into the, the leanings and the bent of whatever institution you go into, decide, do I want to walk out with those views? Do I think those views are accurate? Because you probably will think they're accurate, whether they are or not, because you're going to be in an environment where those views are being proposed and encouraged and strengthened on a regular basis. So that's something just to be aware of. Um, there's plenty of seminaries out there that are, um, the old phrase is, they're cemeteries. Um, that, that, that Christians go to the seminary and they come out non-believers. And this is this is true in many cases. So you want to be careful that you're going to a real believing seminary. I, I mean, one that's faithful and true to Christ, because otherwise, what's the point? Um, there's a lot more we could say about that, but Jay Dizzy Wizzy, I would, I would recommend um, really looking into the seminary before you go there. Find out as much as you can about it. This will be a research project for you before you uh, decide where to attend. But yeah, man, the Bible is your best resource. Just the Bible in context, reading the verses in context, reading all the parallel passages, and thinking very deeply about what you're reading. That is your, that's how you become a Bible thinker. Um, be patient with yourself. Admit to the things you don't know. And start to recognize the difference between what you know is clearly taught in Scripture and what you've sort of absorbed from your local church traditions that may be true or may not be true, but at least put it in that category of, I haven't yet supported this in the Bible yet. So I'm just going to consider it as a possible thing. You know, might be right, might be wrong. And it will get you in trouble as well. <laughs> Number 19, um, <clears throat> anonymous question. Why does Jeremiah 46.25 and Jeremiah 51.44 make it seem like there are multiple gods? How can God punish a God that doesn't exist? Very interesting question. Does Jeremiah 46, 25, and 51, 44 make it seem like there are multiple gods? Let's just read these verses together. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon, 
of No and Pharaoh and Egypt with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. Okay, so God is bringing punishment, right? He's bringing punishment upon them. Ammon is a sun god. He's bringing punishment on a sun god. I mean, this isn't just saying there's some spiritual powerful being out there. It calls out Ammon by name. Should we take that to mean that Ammon is a real existing... Um, just a second. Uh, God. Verse 44 of Jeremiah 51, the other verse you mentioned, it says, I will punish Bel in Babylon. I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nations shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. So, he, so he's going to punish Bel in Babylon. Um, how how do we view this? Like, is this affirming the literal existence of Bel, and and not only the existence of Bel, but or the existence of a spiritual being like a demon behind Bel or an angelic power, a fallen angel, kind of like behind these things, which is which I'd be fine affirming that that behind Bel is some, but this is this is more explicit because it's like it's Bel. <laughs> so does that affirm the identity of these false gods that they're not they're not really false gods, they're real gods, and God's just better than them. I, th I think that the answer is that Jeremiah is 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 speaking poetically. I don't. I, I think he's saying I'm going to punish Bel because in the environment they're in, uh, Babylon, Assyria, these different nations, they 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 not only fight battles and take captives, they think that the power to fight these battles comes from these gods, these false gods. So God is proclaiming judgment against them and their gods. I'm gonna I'm gonna punish them. I'm gonna show them. Now also in Scripture. In Jeremiah, in Isaiah, um, Isaiah, like if you read Isaiah 40 and you read all the chapters around Isaiah 40, you'll see there's a whole section of scripture devoted to the idea that there's only one God and these other gods are simply, they don't exist. So I think that we're, if we're going to take all of scripture, you're, you, you'd either have to posit a contradiction or you'd have to accept that this is speaking poetically because these people worshiped Bel and God's like, I'm going to show them. So let me give you a picture example of this from the Philistines. So we read about this in the Old Testament where the Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant and they captured it. Oops, this is because of the bad uh, leadership of Saul, ultimately. Um, they captured the Ark of the Covenant and they place it into their temple to Dagon. Dagon's like this fish-headed god. And they go in to see Dagon, if, if I'm remembering all the details correctly. And the next morning, Dagon's statue has like fallen over. And so then they prop it up. Now, you could say God's judging Dagon. Like, I would be okay with that terminology. God's judging Dagon. But does that mean then, so Dagon's real? So Dagon's real? Like, they, there's a real Dagon? Like, who is all the things that their mythology says he is? I'm like, no, I don't think that's the case. But you could say he's judging Dagon. Now, they go back later the next day, and he's dropped again, and it's like his arms fell off or something, right? Like, it keeps getting worse every time something worse happens. until, And then the Philistines get get various medical issues. <laughs> um and, and then they were like, all right, let's just get this ark out of here because God, the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, he's clearly more powerful than whatever we're worshiping. All right, we are, we, we don't, when we beat the Philistines, the, the Philistines beat the Israelites, we didn't see the victory of our God over their God. No, no, no. We beat them, but nothing can beat their God. That's the lesson that they're getting. And I think that's the same kind of thing here. So I, I don't think that Jeremiah does that. I think that if you just pull it out of context, you might think that. But um, it just seems like this, this is all very poetic language that's being spoken of here. 
And it's being said in a way for it to make clear that God is bringing judgment not only on the nation for their wickedness, but also on the God that they worship. So this is God. This is meant to be a challenge, not an affirmation of that God. All right, last question. This is from George Castor, who says, should prayer be a dialogue or a monologue? How should we determine if instances of humans having a dialogue with God in the Bible are to be taken as normative? Great questions, George. Good questions, man. Let's start with the second one. How should we determine if instances of humans having dialogue with God in the Bible are to be taken as normative? Um, well, one way we can do this is by examining how frequent they are and how surprising they are. Because if a thing is normative, it is A, very frequent, and B, not surprising. But when we see God speaking to people in Scripture, it is A, not normative, and B, very surprising. Right? When, when God spoke to Samuel, he's like, Samuel. And Samuel gets up and he goes over to Eli. He's like, did you call me? Right? This was not normative. This was very special. The word of the Lord came to Samuel and it was very rare. There's, there's times in Judges that the Lord, word of the Lord was very rare in those days, that kind of thing. So th this is when God's speaking to them. But then this is, of course, an audible speaking, like an actual speaking. Um, with Elijah, this seems to have been a rare and special, very special event where God spoke to him in a still small voice. It wasn't something that happened every time in his every day in his quiet time where God speaks in his still small voice to Elijah. No, this was like real special event. These things seem to be very rare. God spoke to, to Balaam through a donkey. That's used a donkey to speak to him, not through a donkey. But the, um, the reality is that these things seem to be very rare. And they also seem to be very surprising. Right? When, when, when uh, Jacob wrestles with God and he has this amazing spiritual encounter, he like, you know, sets up an altar and he names the place Peniel and all this. And he's like, oh, wow, this is, it's a big deal. So I think that it's not normative to expect God to speak to you in an audible sense. Um, in the New Testament, though, there's a little pushback you can offer, which is that being indwelt by the Spirit, all of us being indwelt by the Spirit, anyone being capable of, say, potentially at least, offering a prophecy or something like that, having the Spirit, this implies that at least the possibility for more intimate God-showing-you-something type moments is more likely after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes. This seems to be pretty clear in the New Testament to me. This raises the possibility, or raises the likelihood of a more normative experience of God showing you something personally, whether that's audible or not. But does it create an expectation for a regular type of experience so that I would get to the point of saying that prayer itself is a dialogue and not a monologue? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. I don't think we get that far with it. I think we get here to potential but not necessarily expectation. That's that's where I would draw the line, and where uh, where some you know charismatics would disagree with me and be like, well, Mike, there should be expectation, and I'm like, well, there's potential, but I don't really have expectation. I go, well, that's why spirit's not moving as much, and I'll be like, well, I don't. To be honest, among many charismatics, I think the spirit's not moving as much as they say he is in their own communities, because they've created such high expectation that false positives are very welcome because they've got to meet their expectations, or else they feel like something's wrong. And I'm just like, no, I'll let the Holy Spirit do what he wants, when he wants, and have no expectations there. So is prayer a dialogue or a monologue? Prayer is by itself, prayer is simply a monologue. That's what it is. Like, I'm praying to God. This is the nature of prayer. God can 
show you something, reveal something to you in prayer. And this still happens to me on a, on a somewhat regular basis where at least, I don't know if it's God speaking to me. I wouldn't use that terminology, but I would simply put it more conservatively this way. I'll be praying about an issue and I suddenly have wisdom on exactly how to handle it. That happens to me on a, on a fairly regular basis where after thinking about it for a day, I haven't got it, nothing. I don't know what to do. And I stop and pray, oh Lord, just help me have wisdom to, oh, I know what I need to do. <laughs> like that's happened so many times. Do I do I think that God is is blessing me with that wisdom? Yes, I do. Would I say it's God speaking to me, like God showed me something and I have like a word from the Lord? I wouldn't exactly put it that that far. I wouldn't elevate it that much. Um, so yeah, but but prayer being a dialogue where this gets a little strange to me, and I'm mean, curious what you guys think in the comments if you're interested in sharing, is that um, it creates a very, very, very high expectation for continual personal revelation from God. So as I pray, I'm sitting there and I pray. And then I stop and I'm silent and I'm listening. This stop and silent and, be, and listen thing, I think, look, something will fill the silence. If God doesn't speak, you will fill it yourself. Or nothing will fill it, in which case you'll quit because you're like, this isn't working for me. But for those who think it works, it, it could be God speaking, but it could also just be you filling the silence yourself. And this is why you'll tend to say things that sound a lot like your most spiritual version of you and maybe not God himself. And so I've seen this happen too many times where people are like, the Lord showed me, the Lord showed me, the Lord showed me, the Lord showed me, the Lord showed me. And I look at their track record over time. And after a while I go, no, they're just one of those people who says that. I'm just going to be honest about that and say, I don't want to discourage. I'm not going to here want to quench the things the Holy Spirit might be doing in someone's life, but I'm not going to be foolish about it either. And so, um, can prayer be a dialogue? Yes. Is prayer inherently a dialogue? No. Prayer is inherently you speaking to God. That's what it is. That's what it always is. God can communicate to you, but I wouldn't, I would not encourage teaching people that prayer is a dialogue because here's the thing. You will be teaching them that most of their prayers are failures unless they can learn how to, how to talk to themselves and think it's God speaking to them because I, I don't think that we have any expectation that that's going to be a normal thing for every Christian. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm In my head as I say these things, I'm thinking of all the different groups of people and how they all might be responding to these things. These are at least my opinions, my thoughts. Um, I'll, I'll add some more scripture to the scripture to the equation by asking this. Do we have examples in scripture, even in the New Testament, that prayer itself is a dialogue? Do we have that? Not just does God ever respond to prayers. Of course he does but rather that prayer is a dialogue. That normally prayer is this moment where you're receiving revelation from God while you pray. Is that is that something we get in Scripture, in the New Testament? This seems foreign to the New Testament. Could happen. I don't see it in there, in Scripture. Prayers are offered to God. Um, yeah. So, speaking of prayer, uh, we're closing our uh, videos in prayer again, which I hadn't done for quite a while, um, but we're going to be doing because it seems like a good idea. So let's do that, and then I'll tell you guys what's coming up on Monday. Um, Father, we are so grateful for your love and your grace that sustains us every day, that we come boldly into, behind the curtain, into the holiest place in our relationship with you because of Jesus. We love you, we bless you, and we pray that you remind us of our eternal heavenly home and hope of the future glory that's coming, that you remind us of the grace that sustains us right now today, that we are not sustained by our goodness, but by your forgiveness 
and your holiness being given to us through Christ. And that you remind us of our commitment to follow Jesus and take up our cross and live for you truly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, now, Monday, I'm doing the next video. At least this is the plan, unless there's some weird thing that happens. Um, the next video in the Women in Ministry series. So I know it's been it's been delayed. This whole series has taken a really long time, but it just takes me a long time to prepare it. And the basic idea of the video on Monday is analyzing the question of, are husbands the head of their wives? And what do we mean by that word head? In the Greek, it's the word kephale. And there's a huge debate over the meaning of the word kephale and a ton of misinformation that is in the literature, especially, I, I'm sorry to say it, on the egalitarian side. But I'm not just going to make this claim. I will demonstrate it with tons of data and details. And it will be um, great for those who are interested in getting really to the nitty gritty of this particular topic. Our husbands, the head of their wives, what does scripture say on the topic? Um, that'll be on Monday. And we'll continue doing that series as, as frequently as I'm able to. As soon as I have one ready, I'll teach it. That's kind of the deal. So thank you all so much. Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. There's an interesting and wonderful verse to think about.